Before we get to the podcast, I wanted to make sure that you knew that my online knee course with Lenny Macrina is on sale for $200 off this week. If you want to learn exactly how to evaluate and treat the knee, you're going to love our comprehensive course where we cover our clinical examination, exercise progressions, and specific information on ACL, meniscus, patellofemoral, articular cartilage, osteoarthritis, and so much more. Plus, you can earn a ton of CEU credit. The course is on sale this week for $200 off. Head to MikeReynolds.com slash knee for more information and to sign up today. On this episode of the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, I'm joined by Amy Seitz. Amy is an associate professor at Northwestern University in the Physical Therapy and Human Movement Science Department where she focuses on musculoskeletal shoulder injuries in her clinical practice and research projects. In this episode, we're going to talk about rotator cuff repairs and the lack of consensus on post-operative rehabilitation guidelines. Welcome to the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Reinold from MikeReinold.com. Hey, Amy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. How's everything going? Oh, great. Thanks, Mike, for the invites. Pleasure to be here. That's awesome. Well, I mean, before we dig in, um, I feel like you're just always up to so much. Um, and I know I'm going to ask you this at the end a little bit here, too. But uh, what are you up to uh, now? We're, we're Northwestern, right? We're over in the great city of Chicago, right? Tell me a little bit about your position. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, on faculty at Northwestern in the Physical Therapy Human Movement Sciences uh, Department. Uh, we have a large program. I mentor uh, PhD students in a bioengineering um, kind of post-professional degree. And then, um, you know, we have a residency and fellowship. I have a little bit of mentoring in that very little, uh, more on the didactic side of that. And, you know, just trying to keep my head above water, writing uh, CPGs and never... <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all CPGs seem like so so fun to write. <laughs> that's that's a lot of work when they're done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, um, any good person from Chicago, I gotta ask: Are you a South Side kind of gal, or are you Wrigleyville? Like, what do you? What oh, are you, are you well, white? Make, make what, what, well, white, so, yeah. white Sox or Cubs? What do you got? Well, so you know, I was from Boston. I moved from Boston uh, to Chicago in 2014. And so Theo beat me by a couple years. So I, you know, <laughs> I say that I was the, the trifecta that made it happen in in Chicago because you know, <laughs> they had Theo, they had Lester, and they brought me <laughs> Chicago. And now you know, made it happen. But you know, the White Sox are come. You know, I, I have I have a lot of hope mm. for them. They have they <laughs> had a good trajectory. And I just think it was just a little bit of a struggle here, maybe. <laughs> we, we, ne- next year's going to be good. I'm optimistic. We'll see. We'll see. I'm uh, I'm optimistic. We'll get there. But all right. Well, then real cool. Real... I hear they have a great upper extremity kind of consultant. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have a very good medical performance department. We're working on it. But um, all right. So real question here is people are going to already cancel this this uh, episode and they're going to move on to the next one. But all right. So what's cooler, Wrigley or Fenway then? Whoa. I am a fan of the older stadiums, mm-hmm. right? So I think for me, it would be, I don't know. I, I, I do like Fenway. It is, it's a, it's a great, great, uh, uh, field and like just the environment there. It's so old school. You got, you know, holes in the way when you sit. <laughs> 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 
fine, but oh, just, you just feel so close. You know, Wrigley is a good number two. I love the, like, wow. Ivy. Wow. Yeah. So, the Ivy's I, cool. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, you can't go wrong with either. They're both pretty special, but anyway, we're supposed to talk shoulder stuff. I think that's more importantly. So, um, it's been awesome to watch your career. I mean, I think we first met like 20 years ago and, um, really watching you evolve your research. And it's almost like, you know, just getting to know you a little bit, like back in the day. Um, I always, I saw that like critical component in your mind. I remember having some good conversations with you and, and I always saw that. And it's funny, like when, if, when I look at all your publications, I, you can almost, it, it tells a story, right? I can actually see what was evolving in your head and, um, kind of all your research projects over time really tell a story. So I thought that was really neat, but you've spent a ton of work on the shoulder. I want to talk a little bit about rotator cuff today with you. Um, let's start with this. And I think this is a big question right now, shoulder impingement. This has really been challenged. And I like using that word because, because that's a, that's a popular word on social media. Now we challenge things, but it's been challenged recently regarding its validity as a diagnosis, right? Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on shoulder impingement on this terminology and how you've evolved your thoughts over your career on this. Cause I know you've put a lot of work into this. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's always the scientist that says, well, we don't really understand which structure is implicated with, with regards to pain provocation tests. And so all the, all the rotator cuff tests, or at least those that aren't like large, massive, full thickness tear tests tend to be tendon resistance tests, uh, and provocative positions that reproduce pain. And so, you know, I can appreciate the fact that we don't really know what structure is implicated when you have a pathology, meaning a tear, and you got positive painful tests. Um, you know, the gold standard for ruling in historically, um, uh, ruling in, rolling out, coming up with the diagnostic accuracy of these tests is really based off of finding the pathology. But so many times now, and, and it's been repeated throughout the body in different regions, you know, there's a lot of asymptomatic pathology. Um, and so you can't always implicate the pathology as being the painful source. So I can appreciate that. I think it's very academic. I think, you know, impingement, certainly from a standpoint of uh, structures being pinched, that's a different uh, kind of mechanism to me than, than the term impingements, meaning let's just give it a diagnosis that's a cuff related to something. I don't right. really care what we call it. I think, um, I think we have learned a lot on how prevalent internal impingement is compared right. to like what we used to think extrinsic impingement or bursal side impingement. And that was the model that I grew up with teaching patients. Like, oh, you raise your arm up, you pinch the tendon on the, on the acroion. And, you know, we just need to get things moving a little bit better scapular mechanics and better, uh, glenohumeral motion. We should be good to go. And I, I can't say that, that that story is probably is, is much different except for the fact that we probably now better know that pain below maybe 70 degrees of elevation is really a feasible range for impingement up in the, or un, under the acromion. And then as you elevate the arm, uh, 130 to 140 degrees, we start to get in the range where you get internal impingement, which is the underside of the cuff which we historically thought was only in throwers in that late cocking position, but it's not, right? It can happen just with arm elevation, whether that be abduction or flexion or scaption. So I think, you know, 
those are really cool. It's cool mechanistic kind of giving us some insight into things. But when it comes to the bottom line of treatment, you know, maybe we need to think about how much that's really changing as a physical therapist, what we do. And I'm not sure we're there yet. Exactly right. Because you're probably still going to do the same thing anyway, which makes sense. But um, I, I think the narrative that I'm seeing quite a bit is that, you know, impingement is normal. We all impinge every time we move our arm, like we impinge the structures. And of course, we've we've known that for decades. That's actually not new. Um, and I, I think sometimes it's too simplistic when people say, like, well, if you impinge all the time, then impingement isn't valid and impingement isn't a concern and it may not cause issues in the future. And then we reference like a systematic review of, uh, you know, 200 people age 18 to 75 with uh, a various amount of shoulder pain. And they're like, look, nothing, nothing's valid. Right? And so uh, it, it's just very, it, I, I think it's been oversimplified. And I, f- I feel bad for the early career professionals that are trying to, trying to, to wrestle with that, right? That concept in there and learn all that, right? We'll be back after a quick break. I hope you're enjoying the podcast episode. If you want to learn more from me, please check out my website, MikeRinald.com. In addition to all my great articles, videos, and podcast episodes, I have a ton of online CEU courses, as well as my inner circle online mentorship and community. Be sure to subscribe to my free newsletter where I'm always sending you great info and exclusive perks and discounts. Just head to MikeRinald.com to get started. Thanks so much. Yeah, I think, you know, is is people have asked, you know, particularly seasoned clinicians, are you still teaching special tests in the entry level program? And yes, of course I am. I mean, we have right, a call. Of course, we we try, try to communicate with other professionals, and if we don't teach those, it's going to be very challenging to communicate with orthopedists. And I think it's important that we have some data that shows us what a prognosis might be with particular interventions. And right now using a cluster of examination findings that help us rule in, well, I don't care how you label it, some diagnosis gives us some papers that we have a good sense of what we should, what what's evidence-based, what we might right. want to try in this patient. And of course, there's always individual factors, but certainly starting with things that we know are effective is not a bad place to start. Right. I think that's a good way of saying it too. And, and, and I'm, I'm still in the boat of, you know, special tests have value, obviously, is, you know, if we're trying to determine the sensitive tissue or whatever it may be or provocative motion, um, you know, that should help align your treatment plan. Um, right. And, and I, I can't imagine how it wouldn't, but, um, but I get, I get it. Well, one thing that I think was underappreciated and I completely underappreciated this was the fact that you could have nociplastic pain. And so you have right. somebody that has a different pl- pain presentation and a pain mechanism. Sure, for those nociceptive pains, yes, we can implicate a tissue. But it's that other group that we might have ignored and not and trying to do the same test. And they have this cluster of examination findings. So now we have a muddy base or population that we studied might not be all of this nociceptive. This is the pathology that's causing the problem. Right. We might have a mixed bag. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen in the next couple, you know, five to 10 years with regards to outcomes research, because we have a different game now. We have a way to define patient's pain presentation that may not have been uh, so great historically with the trials that currently exist. I love that. That's a great point. It, it, it will be it will be nice to see how that evolves. I think that's that's pretty neat. 
Um, let's talk about cuff repairs because I think this this is a big topic I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I, I still think it's absolutely amazing to me. And this is something that I talk to people all the time online. They DM me. I got people in my, my mentorship group that like ask me this question all the time about rotator cuff repairs. But um, it's one of the most common things that we see, right? Like I think in orthopedics, even sports, we see rotator cuff repairs all the time. Yet there is almost no consensus at all on how to manage these after surgery. No, no consensus on the direction, the protocol, what to do. And you see everything from start early range of motion and, and some people that don't start PT for three months, right? And then, you know, I had somebody just the other day in my mentorship group was asking me, you know, about rotator cuff protocols. And he said their, their doctor just has one protocol. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, like one rotator cuff, really, like every tear is the same, no matter what muscle, what size, what tissue quality, what age, what mechanism, it's all the same. It was crazy. Um, I, I think this is crazy. Um, you published a nice little paper in uh, the Journal of Shoulder Elbow Surgery recently where you surveyed a group of PTs and docs about these protocols. What did you find? And I can't wait to hear this because, you know, obviously I've read the paper, but what, what, what did you find and what were you most surprised about from this survey? Yeah, I guess one thing, first of all, this was a group that was out of Philly that had reached out to me and was asking me to participate. And so I asked a couple more questions and, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm involved in, in trying to be part of the research team. <laughs> I love it. You know, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Aboud and Liam Kane and some of the other uh, physicians that were on that paper. But I think, you know, the perspective of the PT probably and the term terms that may have been used weren't probably uh, uh, things that we are maybe familiar with. We, we don't understand right. acuity has a lot of different you know, uh, I guess, uh, uh, definitions in the PT world, right? Is acute meaning, uh, it just happened or is acute meaning it's severe and pain severity. So I think, you know, that's one thing that if I could have done differently with that, with that survey, I would have. But interestingly, I think the questions were phrased well enough. Um, the scenario was put forward where a patient is presenting with a full thickness supraspinatus and infraspinatus tear. So for me, that means it's at least two centimeters, maybe three. Right. It's right. a pretty big tear. Um, and so you say, okay, the first question that was probably most remarkable on the differences in PTs versus orthopedists was, you know, when do we start passive exercises? And you brought this up. Um, you know, PTs are like, yeah, we can move these things. We can move these things within, you know, three weeks. So the question was, can you start them before three weeks? Well, sure. I think, you know, the majority of PTs, like 80% of PTs said, yes, we can do this. And I think we have a better appreciation of the literature with regards to EMG data, how much tension is maybe put on the repair in these various positions that we are less worried about it than maybe some of the physicians. Right. Uh, and I think if some of, and so the physicians certainly you had, they were split. Yeah. You, you know, 30% that said, ah, I don't really care. It's not one way or the other. And 30% said agree and 30% said disagree. Mm. And so, you know, I think they take into account, they're the ones that are really worried about the repair integrity. Um, we are worried about that, but we're also worried about the other impairments and trying to restore normative function. And not to say that they are not in any way, but their key objective is for that repair, the thing that they spent the most time doing to kind of hold up. Our key, you know, outcome is if the patient 
has full function and return to prior level of activity, it feels good. So right. I think, you know, we we might have a better appreciation of the EM, EMG literature. Um, and that's that that could be why. I personally think, I mean, we're based off EMG studies, ten supersponatus, there's very little activation if you can get someone to relax. I think the situ- right. situation I mean, you could do things like um walkouts, putting a able to walk your rear end out you can do uh things like active assistive even just supine active assistive forward punches that's less emg activity than that than that pendulum and the physicians usually give the patients pendulum so i think <laughs> right a matter of like what the comfort level of the physician is and their repair i can appreciate the fact that they might be more concerned but certainly i don't feel like we can do a lot of damage with that i think the other key objective like or the key difference that we noted with that study was when start active exercises and so similarly we have a scenario that same scenario patient scenario and a lot of the physicians said they would you know they disagreed that uh active rate you know when when do they think active range of motion uh exercises should begin and they're thinking more around the six six week mark um and physical therapists some around four to five weeks so i think you know, we 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 might be a little bit uh, more comfortable with uh, the stresses that can be imported through there. I think one thing that we might not always know, and we pr- probably should do a better job at, is getting a report from the physicians that say, "Here's what the tissue quality was. Here's what the tear size configuration was. Here's where, uh, you know, this is how many anchors. This is what I did for the, uh, for my surgery that may be unique. What was the muscle?" integrity like with regards to fat infiltration and atrophy i think all those things if it came in a little summary i would fully have a better idea of the best way to rehab this person than if it was just like all right don't don't move them for six weeks and we'll just <laughs> cross and hope things hold up <laughs> yeah, right that's that's, I, that's never a good approach in my mind is to just cross your fingers as a physical therapist right we don't like that but um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the EMG studies and I, I think it's funny you compared, you know, some things like passive range of motion, even some of our basic exercises are like a pendulum or even like some of the active assisted range of motion that the doctors love, right? Like, yeah, do rope and pulley. Like, well, that actually has more EMG than some of the things that you're not letting us do. Right. Uh, but the thing that blew my mind, if you actually look into some of the functional tasks, uh, research is you, you could do things like opening a door or brushing your teeth or just normal things around the house has more EMG activity than some of the things that doctors are sometimes worried about, right? And I, and not in the survey, but as, as, an, as, a, as an aside, you know, there are two randomized trials that came out in the last couple of years that talk about no sling versus sling mm-hmm. in patients with tater cup tears. And both of those studies... Show you know one out of Switzerland and uh, one out of Canada show that there were no difference in retail rates uh, between those that um, didn't wear a sling. Now, some of the caveats that I think it's important to make sure that we understand with that is the one study said, okay, you can come out of the sling for comfort. You can do things that are pain free. I don't want you to do active abduction, right? Um, thing you shouldn't be lifting things less than less than a pound. And so they're they're giving them some general guidelines. They're not just letting them have at it. Um, but you know, there's really no differences from a standpoint of uh, repair integrity. The good 
news was from a range of motion perspective, from a pain perspective, there's, you know, you get better outcomes if you start moving earlier. So the earlier right. result, result, you know, at four, six, three months, um, sure that you have better range of motion. So I think, you know, I think the one study did, didn't limit the tear sizes. They had a retear, uh, rate somewhere around 26 to 30 or something like that. The other study limited it to small to medium tear sizes, and they had only two retears of the whole cohort, and I think it was 60 or 80 subjects. So I think from that perspective, you know, the larger the tear size, we might need to be a little bit more cautious about letting them actively move straight away and not using the sling. But certainly with those that are small and medium uh, sized rotator cuff with good tissue quality, I guess I wouldn't wouldn't worry so much i guess the biggest question is what athletes are have a rotator cuff repair which are these athletes right it's not right. the professionals right no, well not no, anymore <laughs> they're 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 about to be unprofessional they're about to <laughs> it's 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 hard to it's hard to I get back so these are like your kind of weekend warriors these are right. like your 40 50 olds that you know, may have had some tendon changes anyway. So I think that's the right. other thing that really is kind of remarkable just to see in, you know, in, in, you know, more professional athletics, this, the, the changes in what you've seen from a standpoint of pathology and like right. rehab. Right. I, I've even noticed with my rotator cuff repairs in general that, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago or so, I mean, it was a, it was very much an older population and, I don't want to say fairly isolated because that's not fair, but I'd say the, the mean demographic that we would see would be a little bit older. Nowadays, we're, we're either jumping on these a little bit sooner or maybe we're just doing more throughout our lifespans, but I feel like the mean age of rotator cuff repairs is coming down a little bit. And, you know, I, I wish the protocols and the surgeon preferences would kind of match a little bit because I think you're right. I mean, tissue quality, age, um, the size of the tissue, there are so many things that go go into determining what's the the safest approach after surgery. And I feel like just sometimes the docs just, they, they just blindly want to be conservative because they're so worried about failure on, on examination down the road and the integrity of the repair. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think, you know, <clears throat> you know, some, some of the protocols that may be a bit more aggressive, I have no problem with partial thickness tears. For me, I don't feel like that's a big concern that this is going to be a re-rupture. I think the other thing is like a small rotator cuff repair in an athlete that typically you could have rehabbed might, might, might do okay with a more accelerated program because did it really matter? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I, I just, I find it interesting. And, you know, I mean, I understand the physician's perspective. I mean, if you look at the, the, the results, you look at the research, there are a large amount of retears, right? And the structural integrity of these repairs uh, aren't great. But again, if you, if you dig in deep, it's the older patient with the bigger tear with the worst tissue quality. Um, and those people have different goals. They have different objectives and our rehab progression should match that and should match their expectations, right? Versus a younger person. Um, you know, so I, I'm not sure your experience with, with, you know, some of the physicians you work with or some that you've researched here, but 
Do you think we're paying enough attention to that, that as, as the, the younger, the person comes in with better tissue quality that we can proceed faster? Or do you think physicians are okay. just stuck in the go slow? I, I think, I think it depends on the physician and their population. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a need to fulfill the satisfaction of the patient and the patient's expectations. And certainly, um, I think that, you know, high quality physicians are really based off science and they're trying to make the best judgment that they can for the patient. Um, I think, you know, sometimes we all get in a rut where you just get busy and you, you don't pay attention to some of the details when you're referring a patient to rehab. But I feel like we should have scripts that we should be going to the physicians that we work with and saying, look, I would love this little piece of paper filled out and has some of those characteristics on there so that this way you could be as diligent as you would deem appropriate from a standpoint of uh, the first maybe three months of rehab um, and then how quickly you might start strengthening based off what the pathology was. And even mm -hmm. if you just, you know, kind of followed the surgeon's protocol, you had a better understanding of the patient that you're working with and the, and the factors that were, were addressed in surgery. So I, I don't know. I, I think, I think you get a mixed bag just like you do with any other profession where you always have people, you know, kind of uh, working at the top of the game and they're making really science based and with the best decisions that they know for their patients. And then you have others that may, may not be, and they're just kind of falling back on what they learned when they were in residency and fellowship or whatever. Yeah. And, and that's probably always the case. Um, you know, I, I was really fortunate. I mean, my, my mentor, Kevin Wilk and, and Dr. Andrews, I mean, I got to witness them work together on that and the communication, it was, was top notch. Um, you know, Dr. Andrews would just walk right downstairs and say, Hey, I have this person coming. It was, it was only a medium sized tear, but the tissue quality was terrible. So let's go slow. Let's go on, let's go on the large protocol. And, you know, Kevin really had some really good foresight with that and developing that like heck 30 years ago now where there's, there's different types of, of rotator cuff tears. Um, and you know, I, I think that makes your outcomes so much better when you can customize the progression based on the person. And I, I think it's comical that we have to say that, right? It's like, yeah, duh. Like, of course, <laughs> like we should be customizing that. So maybe we're at the point where it's not that you had a rotator cuff repair, but we got to get a little bit more specific about the details of that rotator cuff, right? I think, I think you're dead, dead, dead on there, Mike. I think you grew up in an environment similar to, to what I did from a standpoint of mentoring, where I was working directly with the surgeons. I would spend two afternoons in their clinic and I got to see what a bad outcome was from their surgeries, right? From the surgery side. And then, you know, getting a standpoint of direct communication, I got to see exactly what I was dealing with. So, I, you know, I think that environment is a great environment. Not everybody has that. So I think, you know, working with your referral base to try to improve the communication is the best that we yeah, I think I think the surgeons appreciate those questions. To be honest, they just don't want to be interrupted in the middle of the day, like the team therapist paging them and pulling them to try to get the information. So if you facilitate that in 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 a way that's conducive for them, um, I think they're going to appreciate it. The patients are going to definitely appreciate it. Yeah, and I think 
I would also probably recommend is becoming very friendly with their uh, nurse practitioner, their physician assistant, whoever's uh, helping them in their office. To me, that is almost invaluable. And I found that person to be very receptive to just quick emails or phone calls or even text messages. If you can get to that point, just say, hey, you know, like how to go with this. And, and I think they respect why we're asking. Right. So they want to answer because they know it's in the benefit of the patient. So, you know, I'd recommend that to you. Not not everybody has a great relationship with the physicians in their community, but at least maybe try to make some relationships with some of their clinical staff that could help, too. No, completely on board with that. All right. So we talked a little bit about range motion. We talked a little bit about immobilization, awareness, sling, stuff like that. What about, what about strengthening? Because this is this is one that sometimes physicians will say even weight. 12 weeks, right? Which is, you know, no other repair would we do that with, right? So, you know, what are your thoughts on strengthening and how do you know when to start, how to progress? What do you think? Yeah, no, I think, I think, again, you're going to get answers all over the board, depending on who you talk to. It, it, it That's dependent on the same factors that we've discussed, age, tear size, whatever. But, you know, the load that you put through there, as long as it's gradual, and as long as it starts in a way that is aligns with what they're doing with a daily activity perspective, doing the best you can. So you can't tell someone they can brush their teeth and kind of use their arm for daily function, but then they can't do, you know, um, light resistance with the arm at the side. That doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make sense. Like, so, so from that perspective, I think, you know, I would, I would, te- I would tend to think that massive repairs, the older person, I might hold off until three months, uh, but that's only out of habit. I right. think there are some things that we could do that are um, completely safe, uh, but you know you just have to understand what tendon you're working when and make sure that you're not overstressing it. So I don't have a great, great answer for that, except for the fact they use the same parameters. If it's somebody that had a, you know, if the tear configuration is longitudinal. And it's a partial or low grade, full thickness or small, full thickness tear. Then, gosh, you could probably start strengthening a lot earlier than what we've been because you have so many other tendons around taking the forces and you're probably not putting them in a position where you're really going to stress that repair. Right. Right. I think, I think it is the spectrum. I don't mind a few patients at the three month mark. I know that that's probably not your population, Mike. But I think it's depends. <laughs> you know, if it's somebody that's fifty and they fell and they're a mountain biking and they're a you know weekend warrior and they really are active, but they had like a four centimeter tear, probably not going to want to bend on that if the physician's saying let's wait till three months to strengthen. But if right. it's somebody that has a small degenerative ch- tear and they ended up having surgery, then yeah, I would. I I feel a little bit better about that. So yeah. There's- Great answer. Yeah, I mean, because again, it's not. I mean, I, I don't think it we're doing ourselves justice by just calling these all rotator cuff repairs. I mean, like what type? I mean, how big? What's the tissue? I, it's just too big of of a conversation in my mind. So, um, to me, I I think that's like the big, you know, the the big take home from this here is that we get to get out of the the context in our heads that all rotator cuff repairs are the same, right? Um, not not only are they going to you know, change what their outcomes may be, both structurally as well as as their um, like functional outcome scales. 
but also just what we're going to probably do with them in their progression. So the more you can communicate with the physician and, and what they do and learn about that, and hopefully over time gain some trust that you can collaborate and talk about that, then I think that's that's the best thing for the outcomes of the person in front of you. And I I used to use the analogy, ah, oh, it's not like an ACL or it's just an ACL. But now I've learned so much more about it. ACLs. That's true came too. That, right? Like, right. well, you know, then I'm like, well, maybe the bone, patellar bone, like our grab. Okay, I could just use that as my example. It's still not the same thing as what the variability that you have in the factors for uh, rotator cuff repair. But, you know, I, I, I think the knee is just around to carry the shoulder. <laughs> I like that. That's pretty good. Spoken as a true shoulder therapist. I like that. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I get the for the physician's perspective too. I mean, some of the outcome studies are daunting. I get that. And you don't want to have a structural failure. That stinks. Right. Um, you know, if you look biomechanically at it, think about it. If you have a if you have a large retracted tear with really poor tissue, they really have to mobilize that tear and repair it down that it almost seems like there's such a biomechanical disadvantage of that repair to actually stay intact. It, it almost seems unrealistic to think of anyway. Well, so very interesting. A paper recently came out from uh, a group in Detroit, Michael Bai's group, and they had a small sample with Rebecca Lawrence as the lead author on this paper, I believe, where they embedded these titanium beads in the tendon so they could figure out where where the tendon was after this repair and is there what's the structure right so just imaging it because you always get some artifacts so they wanted to see what happened with these patients what they ended up finding with ultrasound was that the majority of these tendons have a tendency to stretch and so even if the repair is intact now we have a distended tendon relative <laughs> to the native tendon. And is that why maybe in these degenerative tears, and these are none of these were acute tears, um, why in these degenerative tears, you know, we just start to see some changes in the muscle that continue to happen as they get older. Um, and it just might not be that the tendon can be repaired in a way that it is really high functioning. That was, you know, very small sample, 10, 10 subjects in that study, but it does make you think, boy, what are we really doing? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I thought that was amazing. That was a fascinating study. Um, great conversation about rotator cuff repairs. I love it. Uh, before I let you go, I'd like to end with a little segment called the high five. I want to hear about Kind of, I, I want to dig in and hear about you and your growth mindset a little bit about that so we can all learn from you. An established veteran, you know, leader in our field, you know, still using their brain to grow, which I, which I love. So first thing is, what are you currently working on for your own con ed right now? Yeah, I'd love to say I had time that I'm dedicating to this, but <laughs> I had more time. I am very interested in the neurocognitive aspects I feel that's that's been a, a rehabilitation, like cognitive load. What are we doing with our return to sport um, uh, rehabilitation? I feel like that's been something that is very novel to me. I think we've, there's more information coming out on this on a on an annual basis over the last five years. And I really think, from a rehab perspective, we could probably do more reactive 
training and cognitive loading um, and how we could maybe improve the scenario with regards to uh, central changes that may may occur. I, you know, it's just something I, I never thought about. And as a clinician, we always kind of worked on strength, made sure cutting looked good. But we never really thought about like the that the neurocognitive part. So I think that that's that's that'd be that's certainly an area of interest of mine. Yeah, I look forward to learning more about that too. As as we grow, I I feel like it's in its infancy a little bit. I think we all see the merit. I think we all see you know, where this is going, but, um, it's going to be impactful. I think it's going to change a lot of what we, what we do in the future for sure. Um, sweet. Uh, second question, what, uh, what have you currently changed your mind about clinically? No, I think the diagnosis of instability, you know, um, not, and, and I'm not talking about like it dislocated cause that's a pretty easy diagnosis, but you know, this subtle instability or multi-directional instability, um, the, you know, now I, I, I've evolved that it can't just be being reproduction. You know, what, what, I, I don't think if you put somebody in an apprehension position and that just reproduces pain anteriorly and it is reduced when you do a relocation, that that is really instability. So I think, you know, my, the true definition of a, a, a positive apprehension can't really be pain. It has to be really related to the sensation of instability now is it something else sure it could be could it be that they're lax sure but is it truly instability no i don't think the surgeons think that and that's been an evolution and and probably my my kind of shortcomings um previously just using pain that's a good one i like that um what's your favorite piece of advice that you give your your students that you work with oh gosh i think the big thing is is never lose the why you are doing what you do. And the whole reason we went into this was to help patients. So when you start to lose that as your focus, that's a problem. Okay. So I think, you know, the reason I want to be better at what I do is because uh, that person that's in front of me, I want to help to the best of my ability. And I think that's that that's, that's certainly something that we always need to keep in our mind, not that we need letters after our names, not that we need to do all these things because I want to be, you know, certified in this, specialized in this. It's really because you want to help the patient, and that's why you do it. I love it. That's a good one. Um, what's coming up next for you, Amy? Oh gosh, I don't know. I'm just trying to keep. <laughs> well, I'm trying to get the instability guidelines to a final draft, so that's going to be a bit. Um, and I'm just working on some projects. Really, I have a, a project that I'm doing with um, a bunch of sports therapists who are very interested in return to sport testing. And so hopefully we have a manuscript coming out on that in the upper extremity, which is exciting and collaborations uh, that are extending beyond that, uh, that, that, that project. And I have a couple of PhD students presenting at some conferences coming up, ORS and so forth. Uh, not so much with CSM. I'm excited to see some sports content at CSM. Looks really good. <laughs> I like it. I felt like that was a pitch. I like that. That's great. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that uh, return of sport paper. That'll be good. We'll have to get you on for uh, another episode to to discuss that. That sounds great. Yeah, there's some really great minds behind that. That I'll I'll, I'll pitch their names because they're really really up and coming uh, sports PTs. So I'm That's- excited. 
That's great. Awesome. All right. Well, how do we learn more about you and your research and all the things? How can we find out more yeah, about just you, Yeah, the internet. The internet is it, right? <laughs> well, I don't PubMed. have a, well, yeah, my, my own page. There's probably a link to my, to my research lab um, at Northwestern. But I think, you know, most of the things that I do are associated with, you know, some of the things that we have going on here, the position collaborations. And I'm always interested in collaborating with other groups. Um, but you know, yeah, I guess you have to kind of find me. I'll try to find you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that better. That's perfect. So, but yeah, grab, grab Amy. If you see her at a, a meeting, obviously she's, uh, she's great to chat with and, and talk about more of her research. I think she's being humble. She got more research out there than she's, than she's letting us know. So, uh, she got a lot in that mind. So, uh, Amy, thanks so much. This was amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, uh, sharing all this with, with the audience. Thanks so much. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. I, re- I really appreciate the oppor- opportunity to talk with you and it's fun as always. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please share this with your friends to help spread the word. It would really mean so much to me. Please check out all my online courses, articles, newsletter, and more at MikeRano.com. There's always a ton of great perks for my newsletter subscribers. And also be sure to search for my other podcast, The Ask Mike Reinold Show, where my team of physical therapists, strength coaches, and I answer your questions. See you on the next episode.